I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fit the Mission. At a press conference on Tuesday, San Francisco Mayor London Breed introduced a new plan that would dramatically increase police presence in the city's most beleaguered neighborhood, the Tenderloin. What I'm proposing today and what I will be proposing in the future will make a lot of people uncomfortable. And I don't care. At the end of the day, the safety of the people of San Francisco is the most important thing to me. And we are past the point where what we see is even remotely acceptable. Among the problems Breed calls unacceptable is the open-air drug dealing that happens in the Tenderloin. In recent years, nearly a quarter of all the city's fentanyl overdose deaths happen there. The residents of the Tenderloin should not see that same person back on the streets the next day dealing drugs right in front of their neighborhood. Though San Francisco has taken a harm reduction approach to drug use, as well as a progressive approach in searching for alternatives to policing, Breed is now taking an aggressive stance. And I know that San Francisco is a compassionate city. We are a city that prides ourselves on second chances and rehabilitation. But we're not a city where anything goes. Our compassion should not be mistaken for weakness or indifference. While the city grapples with increased crime and drug overdose deaths, a debate over the role of policing continues. And now Mayor Breed has rolled out a strong policing strategy, and it's a big shift in tone. Now the Tenderloin has become a testing ground for how the city will use the police in its public safety approach. Chronicle reporter Trisha Thadani is here to explain. Trisha, the Tenderloin neighborhood has been a focus of your reporting for some time now. But before we dive into this latest news, can you remind us what have been some of the most recent key issues in the community, maybe compared to other neighborhoods in San Francisco? And how have things worsened recently? Yeah, so the issues that the Tenderloin has experienced today are issues that the Tenderloin has always experienced. Um, But over the last couple of years, and really in the last couple of months in particular, it feels like it's hit um, an extreme crisis point. Um, You know, we have a dramatic surge in overdoses, the majority of which are happening in the Tenderloin. Uh, You walk through the Tenderloin and, you know, no matter what time of day you'll likely see someone using on the streets or passed out. Um, There's been a spike in gun violence compared to the same time last year. Um, And residents just have this general feeling of being unsafe and just not feeling comfortable in their own neighborhood. Um, So that's all come to a head recently um, where a group of Tenderloin residents and particularly those with families and small business owners sent a letter uh, to Mayor London Breed saying, you failed us and we demand change. So let's get into how Mayor Breed is responding now. What is her plan? Tell me about it. Yeah. So over the past year, um, there's been a couple of initiatives that the mayor has announced in regards to addressing conditions in the Tenderloin. So during the pandemic, um, there was this huge report that came out um, about how to address uh, basically tents and homelessness block by block in the Tenderloin. And then one year later, we had another plan uh, where the mayor increased funding to deploy these so-called community ambassadors around mid-market and part of the Tenderloin. Um, So there's been millions of dollars that have been poured into this neighborhood um, over the last year in particular, um, but that still has not done much to allay the concerns that uh, residents feel. 
Um, and so at this recent community meeting uh, that came in response to this letter that all the residents sent, Mayor Breed, she said up front that she doesn't know of any other tool that she could use but increased policing. Mm. So basically with this plan, she's put the Department of Emergency Management in charge of it. Um, and people may recognize that um, that department for their COVID response, which has been hailed around the country for how comprehensive it was and how responsive it was. Um, so the Department of Emergency Emergency management is coming in for what is basically this public safety blitz. So for about two to three months, they're there. They're assessing all of the programs that we currently have, seeing what works, what doesn't, um, and then going to recommend changes that will probably need more funding. But the crux of that plan is increased policing. Now, the backdrop of this is impossible to ignore. Um, obviously, over the last year and a half, um, our whole country has gone through a reckoning of the role that police play in vulnerable communities. And in response to that, Mayor Breed, uh, she has been proposing all of these new programs, such as this, the Street Crisis Response Team, which is a group of behavioral health professionals that will go out and respond to uh, those on the streets instead of police. So she's intentionally been creating programs that take police out of these interactions with are most vulnerable. Um, and now this is a, a really big and significant shift in tone coming from her administration. And of course, there's a lot of different issues affecting the tenderloin, but is a focus point of her new strategy really about the open air drug dealing? You do a lot of reporting on fentanyl. We know that overdose deaths are high. We've talked about it on the show. Is that really prompting this increased policing? And what does that mean? What does increased policing look like for that issue? Yeah. So with this plan, addressing drug dealing seems like it's the top priority. Um, I spoke to Mary Ellen Carroll yesterday, who is the head of the Department of Emergency Management, who is um, heading this plan. And she was very explicit that drug dealing and drug use have created this unsafe environment in San Francisco and particularly in the Tenderloin. And that needs to get addressed with all hands on deck. What really struck me was that she had lumped drug use into that as well. Hmm. So in San Francisco, um, there has been a really big focus on this idea of harm reduction, which is giving people the tools that they need to use as safely as possible until they're ready for more care. Law enforcement has never really been part of that conversation. So if someone is using on the streets, in the open air, uh, on the streets of the Tenderloin, in front of kids, it doesn't matter. There is seldom any enforcement for that. Um, and while Carol, she declined to and couldn't or and said she couldn't provide more details um, because they were still hashing everything out um, of what exactly that would look like. Um, she did suggest that there there would be a more hard line on those who are not only selling drugs, but also using in the open air. So this all means that and we don't know completely yet, but this could result in a bigger number of arrests of both drug dealers and drug users potentially. Potentially. So what um, officials have been very clear, they've been walking a, a very delicate line um, here. So what they've been clear to say is that they will lead with these social uh, interventions that we had. So the street crisis response team or this other team that we have, um, the overdose response team, which is also made up of medical professionals. But Carol said straight up that sometimes people need more of a push and law enforcement could potentially play a pretty big role in that. Hmm. So there does seem to be a shift in tone here by the city. And I want to talk about money. What will be the price tag for this increased law enforcement 
in the tenderloin. I understand that this is overtime spending, which already increased in this year's budget, right? Yes. So the price tag um, that Mayor London Breed is going to ask for is currently unclear. So she and her office and SFPD and the Department of Emergency Management are all currently assessing that. But she is very clear that in order to make this plan work, she needs more resources for police. Right now, regardless of what the amount is, it's more of like the symbolism and the idea of a mayor um, in a big city amid this backdrop of uh, reckoning on how on the role that police play in vulnerable communities is asking for more resources for the police. So this will Mm -hmm. definitely be a big flashpoint on the board of supervisors, which is very progressive and also um, where some of the members of the board disagreed with the mayor and how much funding um, they wanted for the police uh, in this current budget. And why overtime spending? Is this because of the shortage in police officers in the city right now? Is that why the mayor has to look at overspending budget in order to fund this this strategy? Exactly. So right now, uh, the San Francisco Police Department said it's short a couple hundred officers already, which is making it hard for them to respond um, to their current priorities. And in order to increase policing in neighborhoods like Union Square, um, she's looking specifically at overtime funding. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it fair to say that maybe this is a bit of a trial run? You mentioned that this strategy is going to be about a two to three month intervention. Could this be a trial run to justify more longer term policing, depending on how this pans out? Exactly. This whole plan is basically a trial run. The Department of Emergency Management is only supposed to be there for two to three months. And what they're doing is figuring out um, what can they do that will make more sustainable changes in the neighborhood. And again, it's unclear how they're going to measure success in this. But whatever metrics they decide to judge this by, if it hits that, then that's the part of the plan that they'll keep. After a quick break, Trisha will discuss how the city's alternative to policing strategies are working, like street crisis response teams, and what Tenderloin residents are saying about Breed's harder stance with policing. So, Trisha, you've been on Fifth Admission before to discuss Mayor Breed's different initiatives that are alternatives to policing, like the street crisis response team that you mentioned. How are those efforts going and have they made a difference in things like mental health, drug use and homelessness? Yeah. So the general consensus of the street crisis response team so far is that there aren't enough of them. Um, I mean, when you call 911, it's still kind of up in the air of whether you're going to get a police officer or the street crisis response team. Um, Now, for those instances that they're able to respond to, um, some people on the ground have said that they've been very pleased with the idea that they're getting um, behavioral health professionals instead of police officers. But on Tuesday, when we asked Mayor Breed about this very idea of, okay, well, we have been investing in these programs. You've made a concerted effort to invest in programs that, um, you know, specifically take police out of the equation for for people who are struggling on the streets. Why the shift? Mm -hmm. She said, and I quote, when we talk about number of stabbings and shootings and physical assaults that are occurring, unfortunately, our ambassadors, um, which are these unarmed people who are walking around the community, um, and all these other great services we have, uh, they're not equipped to handle those things. And in fact, some of them have put themselves in harm's way as a result of it. So mm. reading between the lines, I mean, she's very clearly expressing that right now what we have is not enough. Um, and law enforcement is a very important part of the equation in her view. 
And like you said, this is going to be a flashpoint because it is a part of a, a larger dialogue that the country's having about policing. But what are Tenderloin community residents saying? Do they have mixed responses to Breed's strategy here? Because, of course, they are the ones living in the community and they, they're the ones that are asking for help. It's definitely mixed. I mean, this community is not a monolith. Um, we've spoken to a bunch of people with a lot of different viewpoints that have ranged from some people saying, you know, this would actually make me feel safer. Like, obviously, I this isn't ideal, but absent any longer term fixes and with the extreme need of something to change right now, this seems like the best thing that we have. Um and others are absolutely furious about this. I spoke to one woman on Tuesday who she's a resident in the Tenderloin and is raising a young daughter there. And she said that police will actually have the opposite effect of her of making her feel more unsafe. Um, so mm. it's definitely a mix, a mixed bag. But at the end of the day, um, whether or not the Tenderloin residents are on the side of wanting more policing or wanting less policing, what everyone we spoke to express is that they just need a fundamental change um, in the neighborhood and more longer term sustainable changes, which include, you know, more healthy and safe housing and uh, also, for example, more uh, consistent and, you know, appropriate treatment options for those that are struggling with addiction. You know, there has been some criticism in the past of how quickly San Francisco mobilized the police, like, for example, in response to the high profile retail thefts we saw in Union Square. So for you, Trisha, as someone who tracks Mayor Breed's decisions around public safety, do you feel like this feels aligned with a larger strategy or does this feel like a knee jerk reaction? I would say a little bit of both. Um, now, again, what the mayor's office said is that they have been planning this for a while. Um, the Department of Emergency Management has apparently started this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what feels abrupt right now is this sudden shift in tone that's coming from the mayor. And again, mm -hmm. you know, she spent the last year focusing on these programs that take police out of the equation. Um, and now it seems that we're putting them back in. Um, so it remains to be seen uh, of, of what will end up happening with this, what the result will be, will it be sustainable. But what she made explicitly clear on Tuesday is that something needs to change. And just to quote her directly at Tuesday's press conference, she said, And it's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies, and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. So it's very clear the direction that um, the mayor wants to take this in, and it remains to be seen what the result will be. Well, we'll see how this all pans out. Trisha, thank you for talking to me about the mayor's latest plan with the Tenderloin, and I appreciate your reporting. Thank you for having me. Trisha Thadani covers City Hall for The Chronicle. Her story about Mayor Lennon Breed's Tenderloin policing plan is online now at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicle app. She wrote it with Chronicle staff reporter Mallory Mensch. Thanks to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening.
Welcome. This special after show of Fifth and Mission is the second installment of a three-part series to be released this year and is supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Each after show will spotlight vital conversations with community leaders and nonprofit organizations who are removing barriers to create a more socially, economically, and racially just Bay Area. To learn more, please visit sfchronicle.com slash youth impact. Hello, I'm Sharice Morrison, and in this episode about equity and access in our communities, we'll hear from leaders in youth organizing and activism who are helping young people move into positions of leadership and power. Their goal? Supporting youth in their efforts to transform their communities and making a lasting impact on the issues that matter to them the most. Organizations like Youth Organize California or Yo Cali are working to support young people at the center of social movements, building the capacity of youth and organizations to practice effective organizing, build power, and create long-term change in our communities. Today, we're going to explore why youth leadership and organizing is critical to creating an inclusive, just, and healthy future for everyone in the Bay Area. I'd like to welcome Linda Sanchez from Youth Organize California. Linda, it's so great to have you here today. Hi, thank you for having me. So to help us get started, can you introduce us to youth organizing? What is it and why is it essential? Absolutely. So youth organizing its essence, really, and at the core of it, is really supporting young people, right, to be decision makers and also providing platforms for them to, you know, achieve justice. And so through youth organizing, we are trying to leverage our skills and experiences really to expand the capacity of youth so that then they can be, you know, their own change agents. So it's not somebody else from the outside saying this is what needs to happen, right? Or somebody else writing the narrative for them, but rather them taking that power into their own hands and leveraging their lived experiences, right, as those those most impacted and also as those on the forefront to say this is what we need, this is what our communities need in order to thrive, in order to succeed, and in order order to live a, a livable and dignified life. You know, I think for me, Really, my work is rooted in migrant justice. And so when I started organizing with undocumented immigrant youth here in the Bay Area, the level of transformation that young people experience through learning their history, but also learning about the unjust systems in this society um, was very powerful and radical, right, to some extent. Because we had young people that, you know, they had a lot of shame in their narrative as immigrants, right? A lot of this kind of self-blame that I am, therefore, this is why I'm living the way that I'm living or my society is experiencing um, certain circumstances. However, once we were able to flip the script on that and have a deeper analysis at the core factors and the roots of why displacement happens, why forced migration happens, young people were able to actually then take a step back and say, actually, then how do I use my story and reframe it from a place of shame and fear into power? And using that story to then say, I am a human being, and because of that, I deserve dignity, I deserve respect, and I cannot be pushed to the side. And so seeing this level of personal transformation from young people, right, to say, you know, to see them 
really step into their full power and also reclaim that power and acknowledge that they can create change for me was very powerful and I think to this day why I still stay engaged in youth organizing because I know that I'm having that impact at the personal level but also then that translates to the community level. Yeah, supporting young people to be able to drop the shame and shift their story into power and then being able to use that story to create change, that's where it's at. That's very inspiring. Now, I know we met through Yo Cali, but how did you personally get started in youth organizing? I think for me, youth organizing has always been part of my own identity growing up in Orange County as, you know, at that point, an undocumented immigrant and really not seeing a lot of representation and specifically a lack of resources for communities that identify like myself. So when I came to Berkeley, which is you know where I transferred um, for school, I became deeply involved in migrant justice work. But beyond that, right, at that point, I was heavily advocating for the Federal DREAM Act. But through that process, actually, I became a little bit more politicized to start thinking about what does it mean to advocate for a specific demographic or a specific small portion of the of the community, right? And at the same time, not taking into account what the implications of that might be for the larger community, including my mom, my uncles, right? Really thinking about what does that what did that mean meant for me? Um, and so through this process, actually, you know, realizing that I live at this intersection. Right. And that activism was not just about me and my immediate needs, but rather about how I apply this and advocate for the collective liberation, the collective freedom and the collective justice of my immediate community, but also those that might live on the margins like myself. And so that now has led you to your work at Yo Cali. Can you tell me about the organization? What kind of impact are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Yo Cali was established in 2016. And really the purpose of YoCali is to expand the capacity of young people and organizations in California to practice transformative youth organizing, right? Um, To build power and also to create long-term transformation in our communities and specifically in the communities that they are rooted in. So how we're able to champion that um, right now is through one of of our most recent initiatives, um, Youth Power Fund, And Youth Power Fund is relatively new. We kicked it off back in 2019. So this is going to be our second cohort. Um, And through the Youth Power Fund, really our core objective is just to support um, and increase capacity right, of organizations, um, strengthen the relationships amongst organizations and youth organizing groups um, with the end goal to really create and advance justice and equity in the communities that they are rooted in. And specifically, right, focusing on indigenous, black, and BIPOC organizations that oftentimes are under-resourced um, and overlooked. So the Youth Power Fund really, right, like it's a, it's a beautiful space because our approach is a little bit different. And this approach really centers and prioritizes youth voices because we understand that youth have a very unique perspective because they are the ones on the forefront doing this work. And so it is through this work, actually, that I've had the privilege and the honor of working with Howie, who actually was part of our first um, cohort of Youth Power Fund as part of our selection team and came back to not only be a peer mentor, but also really inform our process in this second phase of Youth Power Fund. Well, good news is that today we have an opportunity to meet Howie. I'd like to welcome Howie Desta, an active youth leader in the Bay Area, Welcome, Howie. It's so great to have you with us here today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. We'd love to hear a little about your work in the community. 
I have been passionate about uh, making change and, you know, challenging systems of power since I was young. My family and I immigrated to the United States in 2008 and settled in, in East Palo Alto. And during that time, East Palo Alto was considered um, a very violent area. It was um, underfunded. It was um, it lacked resources, but it had potential. And the only time they realized the potential when was when these large corporations moved in. And when these large corporations moved in, a lot of people that looked like me and my friends were um, priced out. And this is a sadly too familiar story and a narrative that's so common within a lot of working class people within the Bay Area. And so this led me to feel um, disillusioned and angry. And it also awoke me up to the systems of power that really exist within the society and within this country. And so during my sophomore year of high school, I got um, connected with Californians for Justice or CFJ. And it was through CFJ that I was able to churn my anger and I think my acknowledgement of these systems of power and really churns that into policy work and advocacy. And um, with my connection with CFJ, they were able to put me in places where conversations were happening. So I was able to meet with Um, assembly members and talk about the importance of educational funding and um, student-centered education. And then they also, with CFJ, we were able to create a safe space within my high school and have these conversations with teachers, staffs, and students about issues that, you know, we are worried about that concerns us. And um, that conversation was around the racial um, disparities around suspension and expulsion rates for black students, even though they made up small portions of the overall population of the um, of the school. It really set me up to continue this line of advocacy and to continue down this path of just not only youth justice, but overall just working towards justice, equality and equity. Well, we would love to hear about your current work with Yo Cali and the Youth Power Fund. Um, so this is actually my second round. I got started with Yocali during its first round. And the amazing thing about this space is that you're working with um, these youth leaders that come from all all different backgrounds, that come from different parts of the Bay Area that are doing amazing work and amaz- like leading campaigns and leading policy work. And so you bring these youth that have such varied experiences but are so willing to make a change and you put them in a space and you give them the power and the resources and that leads to amazing conversations that leads to thought-provoking conversations that question what who deserves money what that um, financial support looks like what resources look like and so in these spaces we were able to really come together and have these conversations and allocate close to a million dollars to these nonprofit organizations within the Bay Area and we're continuing to fundraise for um, more in the future I mean it's an amazing work it's done by BIPOC youth all over the Bay Area and how does that feel to be a decision maker Honestly, it feels amazing. I anytime I'm in that space, I feel empowered. I get to work with, um, a, like beyond the funders. I'm always I'm so grateful to be in space with such amazing youth. Um, I'm always in awe of the things that they are up to. It's just these are people that come from under resourced, underfunded areas that are often overlooked, and 
they're really stepping up to the plate and making the changes. And there's always talks about youth being the future, but they're really driving the change now. And they're so passionate about grass work that it also fuels my passion. So it's a lot of energies feeding off each other and the desire for change in a better world. Well, what kind of impact is possible when young people, youth organize and engage in movements for social change? So when we look at these or youth organizations, they are mainly focused in BIPOC communities that are underserved, overlooked. And so when these youth organize, they are targeting a sector of um, the community in the Bay Area that doesn't have the accesses that are granted to a, pr- a privileged sector. And so by working with youth organizing, they are uplifting a section of the community. They are building connections and they really inspire and empower the youth in ways that doesn't really occur when um, an adult does it or any other organization does it because there's that connection between youth that really happens and there's that relationship building that really happens. And one thing we have to acknowledge is that, you know, as youth, we have a desire for change. We really want to see this change happen. We are tired of continuing to subscribe to this broken system, you know? So we're pushing for change, but the lack of, I guess, funding and the lack of acknowledgement that we are getting from the greater society really damages our pride or it, it hurts our organization. But when, you know, like Yo Cali gives us this, ability to lead change and empower other organizations, I think it creates a more civically engaged youth population that going into the future when they enter adulthood, they are aware of these systems of injustice and actually have the power, the resources to make change happen so that we don't continue, we don't perpetuate these broken systems and continue the injustices that are occurring in this world. And Linda, what kind of impact do you think is possible? So through youth organizing, Really, the idea, right, is that we are thinking long-term. We're thinking about what is the world that we want to create in, and instead of waiting for somebody else to do it for us or for them, right, we are actually actively working towards creating that world. And so we see movements that have emerged all across the world, right, here in our backyard with the Black Panthers. We, th- we think about the Dreamers movement that at one point, you know, I was very heavily involved with. Um, and we're constantly thinking about how and how do we fight for our humanity, right? How do we get there? And more than anything, through youth organizing, what we see, right, is that we move away from this scarcity mentality where we're thinking, you know, um, my neighbor's my my enemy, and rather we're thinking about how are we in community with one another? How would how do we we how do we uplift each other in our community? But also, right, it's not it doesn't end just there. We're also thinking about what world do I want my kids and their kids to grow up in? And so through youth organizing, we're literally manifesting what we want to see three generations from now. Um, and so that's the power and the value of youth organizing is that our young people are challenging oppressive systems, redeveloping better alternatives that work for us, and at the same time, really thinking about how do we take care of one another? How do we love one another? And how do we uplift one another? Thank you so much, Linda, uh, especially just the perspective of thinking, what do we want to see three generations from now? And so, Howie, what would you like the listeners to know? 
yes, I would like them to know that the youth are out here trying to make a difference and we're never going to stop. And so by supporting these youth-led programs and youth-led organizations, you are uplifting the next generation of leaders, the next generation of organizers and activists. So keep supporting us. Okay. Um, And then, Linda, if there was anything you wanted listeners to know, what would you say? Yeah, so through the Youth Power Fund, we are putting about a million dollars in the hands of young leaders to distribute back through their communities in an equitable way. So it's a beautiful experience. I highly encourage folks to learn more about that process by visiting YoCali or YouthOrganizeCalifornia.org. And as how we mentioned, right, youth organizing is so critical and so important. So highly encourage everybody to Think about how do we support our young leaders, whether that's through direct contribution or maybe it's just about mentoring another young leader, right, and really allowing them to reach their full potential. Thank you so much. It's been great to have both of you here to talk about youth organizing and to be able to hear your stories. Thank you so much. I have really enjoyed the time to share a little bit more about the work that we do here in the Bay Area. Thank you so much for having us. It was wonderful being here. Well, okay. As you heard, Youth Voice is making an impact in the Bay Area. As passionate community-based organizations create access for youth voices and youth-led organizations to be elevated in areas of equity and justice, new perspectives and ideas are rising up to find solutions to issues that most concern our local communities. Efforts in supporting access to youth organizing is critical in shaping an inclusive, just, and healthy future. For more information about Youth Organize California, please visit sfchronicle.com slash youth impact. This podcast is in partnership with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and the Her Story Studio and was recorded at Skyline Studios in Oakland, California. 